Shalom, and welcome to Heretics Standing at Sinai, a podcast for those in or adjacent to the Jewish community who are searching for a place to deepen their spirituality without sacrificing their rationality. I am Rabbi J. Tel Rav, and I'm glad that you're joining us for this third in a series of episodes exploring the liturgy of our upcoming Jewish High Holidays. Whether you've been exploring Jewish spirituality for years, or this is your first time considering it, we're glad you're here and hope you'll want to return. Before we get underway, it's been a long time since I explained the name Heretics Standing at Sinai. So I thought I would take a few moments and return to an explanation of how I got to this title. It comes from a piece of writing from J. Michelson on Judaism Unbound, where he talks about the word heretic coming from the Latin, meaning to choose. And it refers to an opinion which disagrees with or conflicts with those who generally accept something as being authoritative, proper, or correct. In other words, a heretic is a person who has applied their own intellect and experience of the world to emerge with a truth that helps them explain the universe. This is really just a long-winded way of stating that here at Heretics, we explore that space which may diverge from the teachings of your childhood Sunday school teacher about God, traditions, myths, and the purposes of Judaism. There's a great story that I came across years ago about the apichorus. This is a Greek word that means heretic, and it's about a man who aspires to be uh, the greatest apichorus in the entire world. And to get there, he decides to apprentice with another who's already recognized as an apichorus. The newcomer asks the veteran for recommendations about what to do, and the man suggests rearranging the pages of the prayer book. The first one says, really? That's a rather tame example for a heretic. I was thinking more along the lines of, and then he suggests something much worse involving words like destroy and desecrate and burn. The seasoned Epicurus, having listened, says, what I suggested is the behavior of an Epicurus. What you've suggested is simply not Jewish. The word comes from the name of the Greek philosopher Epicurus. He offered teachings that conflicted with the Judeo-Christian voices around himself, and they ostracized him for it. People who held beliefs that challenged the mainstream teachings became known by the word Epicurus, or heretic. Heretics have a conception of what religion is, that definition just varies from the definition of fundamentalists. But even in this story that I just told, there are limits to what a heretic seeks to achieve for him or herself. In other words, those who have thoughtfully constructed a Jewish life that is built on one's own belief and interpretation of tradition can be called a heretic. And I'll suggest that we should all hope to be heretics. I believe this responsibility falls on the shoulders of the members of the progressive Jewish community to engage with their own choices and emerge proudly defiant with nobody to demand that they do otherwise because their choices are based on their beliefs. That's the group of individuals you find yourself among as you listen to these episodes. And 
based perhaps only on the fact that this podcast has been downloaded more than 7,000 times, people seem to want to continue to explore this way of entering our tradition in authentic ways that also honor our tradition. So a few weeks ago, we first explored the non-dual ways of approaching Avinu Malkenu. Then the next week, we took a look at and reframed the way that we might relate to the prayer Unitana Tokef. I heard feedback from several of you who told me that you were pleasantly surprised because the ways that I had used to describe what the prayers meant differed from what you thought they meant. Even the straightforward traditional meaning of the liturgy was something new for you to think about. I really enjoyed chatting with those of you who came forward to share your thoughts, and I'd love to hear from more of you about what you've been thinking. I have to admit, it can be a little weird just talking into the emptiness and wondering who's out there listening. And so, this week, this third week of a four-part series, we're going to delve deeper into yet the next prayer from our High Holiday Machzor, the prayer book, and we'll open it up for our use while we also maintain the place in our traditional holiday repertoire. Now, join me for a conversation about Ashamnu. Those of you who are familiar with the High Holiday Experience will be familiar as well with the choreography of this prayer. Think back to the time sitting in the synagogue when you're told to or notice that people around you have balled up their hands into a fist, and then we beat our chest in a call-and-response acrostic that's led by the cantor. Back and forth, the letters of the Hebrew Aleph Bet tick slowly by as we make a symbolic connection between our fist and our chest at each mention of a transgression. What everybody notices first is that the words of each transgression are conjugated in the first-person plural, so that what we're really saying is we have sinned, we have betrayed, we have stolen, we have scorned others, we have been cruel in our speech, and on and on. So what happens when you say these words and you get to an example that doesn't describe your behavior this past year? This is a part of our Yom Kippur process of confessing. Perhaps Some are ready to jump right in and are able to articulate all their sins before God in a free-form sort of way, but most of us need a script. As funny as that might be to say, we're not very good at speaking our sins. There are probably other religious traditions you might be thinking about who practice this a bit more than our Jewish tradition does, but As members of a liturgical rite that relies on the role of set words read together, there's something very comforting about knowing exactly what to say as the rest of these prayers are placed right on our tongue. And so while we're confessing a list of things, many of them do not apply to our past year. And plenty of classical rabbis have asked that question and answered it. What are we to think of this? Isaac Luria the Kabbalist from Svat in the 16th century, offers a thought on this teaching. He says that the entirety of our community is like one big organism. So we must take responsibility for the sins others have committed. He says the vitality of the whole 
depends on the health of every organ and limb, and therefore each individual sin inflicts damage on the whole organism, and all of us share the responsibility for healing the world. I actually really like the way he says this, but I'm going to need to go a little bit further before I can come back to explain why. Jonathan Sachs also suggested that there's a way to use these formulas of language to help break us out of our cultural orientation towards being perfect. He asks us to imagine an unforgiving culture, much like the one that exists throughout most of the contemporary West. The culture of viral videos and hashtags and so on. In an unforgiving culture, he asks, what do you do? You bluff. You do anything possible to avoid confession. You hope no one finds out what you've done. If they do, then you can deny it for as long as possible. But, he goes on, in a culture of forgiveness, like Judaism, and especially on the days of Yom Kippur, you can do the opposite. You can be honest. You can express remorse. You can acknowledge that you are not proud of everything you did. And, he finishes by saying, you can commit yourself to not repeating that sin in the future. So I like this too. I like what Rabbi Sachs teaches us here. Let me expand on this just a bit further too. As a non-dualist, I strive to spend as much of the time as possible aware of and recognizing the ways in which I divide up the world. I do this all the time, that is, creating divisions, because it's much easier. It's helpful when I can divide between my people and those people, or between my beliefs and their beliefs. And of course, it's the nature of our capitalist world to divide between my needs and their needs. But Rami Shapiro's definition of teshuva, of, of return, is not best translated as repentance. This day of Yom Kippur, a day of teshuva, he says, is not about bringing back our awareness of the need to apologize, but rather bringing oneself back to the awareness that these distinctions of duality, me and you, mine and yours, they're really a veil that obscure the reality of oneness. People are people. We're all alike in that way. My beliefs seem as right to me as their beliefs seem to them. And if meeting my material needs negatively impacts the other trying to meet their needs, then we probably haven't worked hard enough yet to equitably share resources. When we articulate the Ashamnu, in the plural, I am able to engage in a real-time cheshbon hanefesh, an accounting of the soul. I'm reminding myself that the difference between me and those who commit awful transgressions is not nearly as wide as I prefer to believe. To hold on to the oneness which includes me as a sinner and everyone else as sinners too, that's my ultimate goal. And I recite this prayer with my mind as open and as inclusive as possible. And I feel a great deal of sadness 
as I admit that we humans do all these things. Now, for those who've been around long enough to watch the evolution of prayer books, uh, the High Holiday prayer books have uh, experienced the same kind of change. And there is a new trend in this modern prayer book that we use, Mishkan HaNefesh, which adds in the opportunity for us to acknowledge not just all these ways in which we've missed our mark and the things that we're embarrassed about, the sins, but also the ways that we are good. Sometimes it's called Hakarat Hatov, or acknowledging the good, um, naming the positive. There's, I think, a real psychological benefit to this. I certainly know a lot of people who think of organized religion as a way to make us feel guilty and bad about ourselves. And they're not wrong. This is one of the worst outcomes of religious traditions, and I would love to see that come to an end. Of course, I want to use our rituals for constant growth, but I think that most parents would agree that belittling a child is not the most effective way to get them to act the way that we would hope. And so, the opposite approach is needed here, too. We've gone through and recited the litany of uh, ways in which we missed the mark, and so it's time to balance that out with a litany of praise that we deserve for the good that we've done or tried to do. And we also admit that just as there are sinners whose collective behavior is an embarrassment to me, there are saints in my world who I'm embarrassed to compare myself to. So, with the Hakarat Atov balancing out the Ashamnu, I try to lift myself, and I'm proud of the small steps I've been able to achieve. But we're going to realize the most beautiful future only through collective engagement. So the guilt that I'm claiming for myself really belongs to the collective of humanity, but the praise does too. The words of the traditional Ashamnu translation may not speak to you as powerfully as you wish, and there are some terrific alternative Ashamnus for you to consider if the one in the prayer book is getting a little stale. I'm going to put a link in the show notes for you to take a look, and you can see if there are other ways for you to articulate uh, all the opportunities for growth. We're going to close out the episode in just a moment with the sound of Cantor Micah and our High Holiday Choir leading us through Ashamnu. And before you show up on Yom Kippur to recite these words live with us, perhaps you'll take some time and make a decision about how you care to wear them this year. What can they do for you on your personal journey? I hope to have you back again next week for our final installment of our special Elul series when we will take on the iconic prayer of Kol Nidre. Until then, all you heretics out there, stand proud. <laughs>